Marianne Gillum. Welcome to Fab NYC's podcast, Artwork, about how art works in the world. This episode has been created by Native Art Department International, a collaborative long-term project created and administered by Maria Hupfield and Jason Lujan. As artists in residence with Fourth Arts Block and Downtown Art, during the first six months of 2018, Native Art Department International conducted three interviews with people each with deep histories and connections to the Lower East Side. Paul Castrucci is an architect and a passive house trained designer whose Lower East Side firm specializes in sustainable residential architecture, community centers, public gardens, and artist studios. The firm's services are focused on new buildings that are passive house and net zero certified. They also provide rehabilitation of existing structures and act as energy conservation and code consultants. So, Paul Castrucci, architect. It says here that you are a passive house trained designer. It was founded 30 years ago, I guess, here in New York City? Uh, founded in the city of New York, yes. And um, uh, New York City, um, I, I grew up in New Jersey. Um, uh, my, my father was an engineer, structural engineer. Uh, and... Um, he worked with a large engineering firm and always he was working on all the skyscrapers in the city. Um, the original firm did the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. And um, by the time I was a kid, he was working, they were working on Sixth Avenue, um, building all the skyscrapers along the way. And there was an incredible sense of dehumanization in the buildings. This was this incredible repetitiveness in, in the buildings and the plazas. And they were once awe-inspiring, and then at once there was a certain issue of frightening mm-hmm. um, to them, and um, and so it was just an interesting process to see, and um, and just you know we were we, we lived along the Hudson, and we were um, had a view of the city, and we're constantly seeing the um, skyscrapers going up and down, mm-hmm. and, you know, an amazing process, and and that sort of inspired me and led, led me into the city of New York. I went to the school in the city of New York. And um, in the late 70s and 80s, and there was an incredible amount of things going on. Um, but I, you know, I was really focused on the architecture for So you for, started for off with, with an interest in architecture. It wasn't something that you went to later after maybe doing something else or being interested in something different. Um, you know, high school was ending, ending, and at some point I had to decide what, what did I want to do in my life. And I had a, an interest in building and a great interest in seeing things being put together, um, we were m- mostly taking things apart as kids and dismantling um, pieces of machinery and, and cheap electronics and never getting them back together. But y- you saw the innards and how, how things got put together, and th- there were beautiful, curious puzzles. In the 1970s, I, I was starting to drive a car. It was uh, in the mid 70s, there was an oil crisis, and you know, and, and you know, waiting on line for gas, and it's just like, you know, What's wrong with our society? Why are we? Why are there sh- these shortfalls? And and then you, you start to think and realize, well, there's Volkswagens that may be getting or small cars get twenty or thirty miles to a gallon, and then there's a you know I had an old car for two hundred dollars that was getting you know ten miles in a gallon, and then the, you know you start to think of what does one really need and uh, ut- utilitarian needs, and then there's a lot of big issues. There's a lot of waste and. It, 
in extreme consumerism um, at this point in time. You'd, you, you'd, you know, you'd get a gift for a birthday present as a child and it wouldn't last a week. And, you know, what's that about? And, you know, you have a car and it's incredible to see the cars that went, went through in the 40s and 50s and the early development of cars. Um, but there were monsters and and, you know, incredible wastefulness, but beauties at the same time, but incredible waste. And then all these things you're, and you're going through this crisis and people are fighting, you know, there's issues about countries and borders and whose oil does this belong to and national security. And you, all, you're, you know, all the dots certainly didn't connect, but there was something about waste that just didn't make any sense at the time in the 70s, what was around in terms of sustainable buildings and structures as compared to now? Like, how did you, where did you find yourself when you decided, well, I want to do something about this and take an active role? What recourse did you have? So in the 70s, the architecture about sustainability was at a really, really young stage, and it was a lot of do-it-yourself. Some old hippies in the woods, some architects um, thinking about it. There are a number of mistakes that people were making, the architecture and the aesthetics that came out of it weren't that interesting. Um, there were socially responsible and communal projects f- for architecture, and there were certainly utopian societies. But the architecture about saving energy was, wasn't interesting. But people were trying okay. and, and were doing something. And basically, the Passive House model, um, there were people throughout the States, the United States, doing these super insulated houses. And Passive House came about by um, a German and a Swiss physicist studying energy use and reduction. They wanted to see what was being done in the States. And they saw and measured what was being done in the States, and they turned that into a beautiful energy model that's been going on for 30-some-odd years. I heard something. I I don't have the full backstory, but... Were you in, involved with the squatter movement here downtown? So, yeah. Um, you know, living in um, the Lower East Side, um, you know. Uh, Is this something you want to talk about? Some. Okay. <laughs> um, living in the Lower East Side in the um, 80s, um, you know, there was an incredible pressure. Uh, well, So, uh, let's see, where do I start? So, we came to the Lower East Side because there was no pressure. There was a little abandonment. There was a a strong community here, but there was a lot of abandonment still. And there was a strong cultural society. There were um, different immigrant groups here that passed through here over the years, and then there was still a strong commitment of some of the beat poets were left. There were a lot of artists moving in here beginning of punk rock and different artists and experimentation and we thought it was in a live place. So that's how we wound up downtown New York. It was affordable, there was something socially happening, there was some social responsibility, there were people building and creative things and that was the interest and there was a strong community that was here before us and that we thought we could collaborate with and partake or join. You know, at some point, you know, there was different um, pressures in rent and more people moving in and the rent was getting more and more expensive. There was an incredible amount of empty buildings here 
and there was a rumbling and people, there was some homesteading going on in the past, but it wasn't as strong, but there was still an incredible amount of buildings that were empty. You'd walk home at the end of the day or you'd just be walking in the neighborhood. You'd see smoke at the end of the block and is that my house on fire? Is that, um, is that one of the empty buildings burning? That's an, another incredible waste. This doesn't make any sense that people aren't partaking in their community. And so there was some... There were people taking active, making it, making an active stand to do something within the community. There were issues with drugs, and people were making a more active stand, and that's how I observed and that sometimes partook in the Squarta community. Okay. So, um, as an architect over the years, we met people sitting around in Tompkins Square Park, walking in the neighborhood. You'd walk through the neighborhood in the 80s and you knew most of the faces and some of the people. It's a little bit different now, but there was a sense of community and partaking in the community. People had problems with their buildings or issues finding housing and uh, being an architect, you gave advice or participated in somebody having a building issue. And we met people that were active in the community and we saw that people were squatting buildings. So at times, there were times where we would somehow make, um, somebody was looking to look at a building and they wanted to know if their building was falling down, if this was a good building to move into. And we gave our, our insights and some assistance. You're just being good neighbors. Yeah, we're yeah. being good neighbors. And at some point, we partook in that activity as well. Our rent um, on East 4th Street went from $250 to $1,900. So that was one way of participating in the community for a number of years. But uh, you know, at some point, it wasn't the thing. It, it was an incredible moment of time and efforts that were going into it. It wasn't for me to do. Um, and now you have your own architecture firm. Yes. What was the evolution of that? You went from being involved in this alive setting down here and deciding to put roots down. Um, how did that come about? Um, I had, um, after, college, after I graduated, um, I had worked um, in Midtown, we were doing a lot of affordable housing. There was a great mix of things. Some of the projects were in the Lower East Side. Um, as an architect, a lot of the projects were throughout the city, so it took me to all the different boroughs and communities um, within the city of New York, and there's a lot of different things going on in activities. Um, and it was a great thing to see, but there was some dissatisfaction with working as an architect full-time. Um, there was a, being an architect there's a lot of detail and focus and bureaucracy and I so I was leaning more towards doing public art and, and public pieces and my own artwork um, so in the at some point I, uh, I dropped out uh, uh, from architecture uh, I was doing public art pieces um, I did a piece, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to do a piece at Art on the Beach in the 80s. Um, and I had done another handful of other publicly supported pieces over the years. Um, passive House. So pass the beauty of Passive House, it's all about, um, there's no incredible futuristic trigger or mechanism of what a Passive House is. It's, it's a simply not using the energy that you don't need and reducing your energy. 
and, and doing it in a smart and efficient way. It's not sexy. There's, there's some technology, um, but the beauty about passive houses is it's an energy model. It gets you to think about all the different parts of the building. It gets you to look at the roof. And then you can see where putting the different levels of in, insulation are on the different portions of the building. And, you know, what's the most expensive way to do it and what's the most reasonable way to do it. And the whole thing is about getting to using um, X number of uh, BTUs per square foot to, to, to reach your end goal. And by manipulating this energy model, you're able to accomplish that, and there's many ways of doing it. Um, passive house is all about not using something that you don't need, reducing the energy, and it's just a better windows, triple glazed, more insulation. Um, it's a really thoughtful process because the codes require that you put insulation, but if you leave a piece of insulation out or if you're not continuous with it, whatever insulation you're putting in might not make any sense or might not be effective at all. So if you're putting in metal studs and insulation between it, you're losing 40% of the value of the insulation because there's metal studs in between it and they're translating all the information. So it's a really good thought process for an architect or builder to do and observe. So you're doing this more thought out project to this passive house standard to meet the standard so you're not so you're reducing energy, not using things you don't need. So um, just to get a little perspective, the, some, some of the principles of passive house is just, you know, basically reducing your energy, mm -hmm. using less oil, um, using less fossil fuel on your site. Mm -hmm. um, we don't need to use um, fossil fuels for gas, cooking, or heating on our site. We do have to use electricity, um, which is cleaner on site, but at some place the electricity is maybe used burning on a mass scale for creating the electricity. Or though it, in, there's a great encouragement in using renewable energy sources um, or purchasing from renewable en energy sources. Um, so if with a passive house building, um, like in an old tenement, is a very leaky building. Um, and that's how you get fresh air in an old tenement. It, because the, all the windows are just poorly made. Um, and you're getting leaks through probably in windows that are leaking and not built well. They might be wood, they might be aluminum. That, and it's where, well, if air is leaking in, water is leaking in, then there's mold and mildew. So it's not the best way to get fresh air. And it's also the way they control the heating and cooling in the building by opening and closing the window, especially the heating in the wintertime, because the heating systems aren't uh, accurate and are producing the heat where they need it. It's just you open and close the window, steam heat is simple, beautiful, but it's controlled by opening and closing windows, not efficient. So a passive house building is extremely airtight and it's measured um, so you, you aren't losing it. And you, in an old tenement, an old row house, you're losing 50 to 70% of your energy through leak, leaking air through your building. Mm -hmm. So a passive house is reducing that right off uh, the bat. Let me, let me break in. So then how, sure. do you, how do you negotiate when you have a building that's a public building? For example, ABC Norio, which would right. be an art space, and you would have the door, the door opening and closing at a constant rate. What goes into those kinds of... Um, so public billing, there's a certain calculation because you know the population, the opening and closing of the door is calculated into the energy model. It affects it, but not as much as continuous air seeping out of the building. Okay. So it's, it is an effect. Um, and there's a certain pressure in a building. So there's, right. you know, it's not blowing out. It's like, you know... Mm -hmm. There's ease, and it's 
So it, it, there, there is some effect. So um, air sealing a building and keeping it really airtight. Um, but at the same time, you need fresh air. So that fresh air is brought in with one of the few machines um, that are required through an energy recovery ventilation system. It's a little heat exchanger. Mm-hmm. So you're, you want to exhaust air from kitchens and bathrooms and get fresh air in there and get um, different odors out. But at the same time, you're bringing fresh air in. So, the, so for instance, in the wintertime, you're exhausting hot air from all the bathrooms and kitchens. You want to bring fresh air in. Um, we're not mixing the two, but through a series of tubes, the, the, air, the, the, the warmer air is passing the colder air coming in, and you're transferring the heat to the cold air coming in. And so instead of the cold air coming in at zero degrees, you can recuperate 90% of the energy. You can bring the energy, the air in at 60 degrees, not at zero degrees. So there's, there's little or no energy loss by bringing in fresh air into a building. Um, you're also using really good windows that are triple glaze, that again, that they're not leaking, that they're made well with lots of seals. Um, air sealing, uh, you're insulating the building. In New York City requires two inches of insula- continuous insulation. A passive house is a little bit smarter. We generally require four to six inches of continuous insulation. So it's the same cost of labor installing it, but it's just two, two to four more inches of material. Um, and it's a little more thoughtful process, and that's the insulation that you require, and that's what you're putting it in. And so all these, th- and then you're orientating your building towards the sun, and taking, getting whatever heat gain from the sun um, that you possibly can um, into the building. The building like ABC No Rio, Fortunately, we're facing south on the front facade, so there's lots of windows, and that's bringing the heat. And at the same time, you don't want to lose, you don't want to overheat your building in the um, summertime with all this direct sunlight. So we, the facade is planted, and the planted facade is providing shade and cooling the air down. So it's a longer period of time. You'll be able to keep the windows open and less, a little bit less cooling you might need. Uh. Um, there seems to be a version of a utopia presented by the technology sector, driverless cars, you know, high-speed rail, those kinds of things. How do you see all of this fitting together? Are they at, do, you, do you think these are at odds with each other? Are they in tandem? Are they, are they allies working towards this? Are they, let me rephrase that. Uh, one of the things I find appealing is when you have several groups working to the same goal, but they're not necessarily allies. Or is it one of those kinds of situations? I don't know if our priorities need to be driverless cars and reaching Mars at this point in time. Those seem to be more vanity projects. Um, there are certain things that are a part of a driverless car that might be a warning system to prevent accidents, but maybe we can better spend our time rather than driving. Maybe we don't need to be commuting at all. Maybe we don't need as many cars. So I'm a little puzzled by the driverless car movement, although it does sound exciting and there's incredible technologies to be reached. There's other problems uh, that we need to resolve. Um, you know, we're, we're looking to solve problems and cutting down on waste, but we're also ex- looking to express ourselves. So we're trying to build rational buildings, utilitarian buildings. We're trying to use simple materials. Um, we're looking to use futurist materials and metals to express ourselves that are, that are lightweight and make sense, but at the same time create some beauty. This is Ryan Gillum for Artwork, the Fab NYC podcast about how art works in the world. 
This episode was created by Native Art Department International, a collaborative project of artists Maria Hupfield and Jason Luhan. More artwork podcasts can be found on our website at www.fabnyc.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Thanks to Michael Hickey and the Fab NYC staff. And as always, our appreciation to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, New York City Department of Small Business Services, City Council Member Carlina Rivera, New York State Council on the Arts, and Con Edison for supporting Fab NYC programs. Thanks for listening.